Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, one of your co-hosts. As usual, I want to start saying thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate everybody out there trying to learn more about uh, some of the leaders here in our great city of Columbus, Ohio, and I uh, hope you're all staying safe out there. Case counts going up for coronavirus, and we all know we're right on the edge of getting that vaccine, uh, hopefully here in the next few months. But uh, we got to hunker down. We got to stay safe in the uh, the remaining time period. So stay inside, stay safe, listen to lots of Conquering Columbus podcasts. But today on the show, uh, we got a special guest, Mr. Todd Pentagor, and he's the CEO of Wendy's Corporation. And uh, Wendy's, as hopefully everybody knows, got its start here in Columbus. And they are obviously a huge corporation, and Todd manages a lot on his day to day. But he's got a lot of great insights, especially into the corporate world, which is something that we don't always get as much of a, uh, a spin on here. So it was great talking to Todd, learning more about his career, his journey, his path. And uh, he's got a lot of great advice for anybody looking to climb that ladder or looking to continue to grow their career. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. I hope you all enjoy our interview with Todd. And uh, as always, stay tuned because we'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Today on the show, Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that. Live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Olman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today, and that goal stays the same 24-7, 365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike, here in the studio with me is Josh. Hello, hello. Hey, how you doing, Josh? Today on the show, really excited. We've got uh, a special guest that uh, we've actually been working to try and get on the show for a little while here. Uh, we're excited to have him joining us today, and it is Mr. Todd Penninger, and Todd is the CEO of Wendy's. Todd joined the Wendy's team in 2013 as SVP and Chief Financial Officer and was appointed CEO in May of 2016. And prior to his employment with Wendy's, Todd worked at the Kellogg Company, a uh, global leader in food products. Probably have heard of their cereals. And uh, from 2000 to 2013, where he served in several key leadership positions, including Vice President of Kellogg Company and President of U.S. Snacks from 2009 to 2013, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Kellogg Europe from 2007 to 2009, and VP and Chief Financial Officer of Kellogg USA and Kellogg Snacks from 2002 to 2007. Todd has also held roles at the Ford Motor Company, but uh, we're really excited to have him on the day to talk about uh, his journey, all things Wendy's and more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Todd. Well, thanks for having me, Mike and uh, Josh. Looking forward to the discussion tonight. Hopefully you guys are big Wendy's lovers, because if you're not, I'll have to get you converted by the end of the show. I, uh, I am a big Wendy's lover. Actually, I love the, I think it's the number nine. Nope, it changed though recently. Not recently, but the uh, Asiago Bacon Ranch chicken sandwich, spicy. 
like one of the best. You're taking Mike down a rabbit hole now. (laughs) Sorry, I'm getting hungry. The great news is he knows that we continue to change the menu and numbering around. So I know he's a loyal and uh, an active (laughs) consumer. Yeah. Made the crave line. So you pass the test. There we go. See, see. uh, But uh, so, Todd, one of the first places we'd like to start is just get a little background on yourself and, uh, you know, your early life and career. So any any major highlights that stand out to you, maybe start as far back as, hey, where'd you grow up? Yeah, no, thanks, uh, uh, Mike. You know, grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in a little town called Iron Mountain. So way, way up north. You know, I was big sports nut growing up, played all the sports, basketball, football, golf, uh, big skier. And I had a couple of idols growing up in my little high school. Tommy Izzo, who coaches Michigan State, and Steve Mariucci, who coached the Lions 49ers. And uh, now on the NFL Network, we're both nine years older than I in high school. So those were the legends that we looked up to when, uh, when I was a kid growing up. You know, I ended up going down to Michigan State from uh, from the Upper Peninsula. First time I lived outside of the UP, um, so it was a, a big move for me. But uh, ended up down there. Had to uh, had to get used to the, the being the second school up in uh, up in Michigan all the time. You know, you get the the University of Michigan, which we don't like to talk about a lot. And <laughs> you guys being from Ohio State can say the same. But um, very passionate around. Uh, you know, the uh, the green and white uh, of the Spartans and spent a lot of time there. Uh, went to undergrad at uh, Michigan State. I was in an accounting undergrad, uh, really studied accounting because my dad had a CPA firm. I thought I'd always go back and just take over the practice. Realized once I finished undergrad that uh, I hated accounting. But, um, you know, the one thing I did do is uh, decided that I needed to sit for the CPA exam right away. And the only reason I did that is my dad took two tries to get it done. I thought, um, hey, I'm going to do the old man and I'm going to get it done in one crack. And I passed all four parts the first time. So I was pretty excited about that. Never practiced accounting and just decided to stay in school and uh, ended up working on my MBA in finance at um, at Michigan State. Uh, so spent six years there and spent a lot of time back up at the university recruiting and giving back on the uh, Broad School of Business Board, which I sit on today. So you were up your time in Michigan State, and then how did things progress from there? Did you did you leave your MBA thinking that the C-suite is where you wanted to be, or were you were just kind of following your passion and, and seeing how things unfolded? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Josh. You know, when I uh, when I was at Michigan State, I was really blessed. Um, during graduate school, I got to work for a small technology company that was working on a bunch of government contracts, so a bunch of tech folks that really didn't know how to manage uh, their P&L or their balance sheet. So through grad school, I got to work with them, uh, got to straighten out their finances, uh, got to put some financial discipline in place. As a 22-year-old kid, got to go spend some time uh, at the bank working on uh, on their capital structure and debt financing. Uh, and it really got me excited about a career in finance. And you know, I was blessed that Ford Motor Company was recruiting on campus at the time. And um, I was uh, accepted to uh, to start at Ford Motor Company. I had a few other offers um, out of grad school, but when the offer from Ford Motor Company came through, you know, they had an unbelievable track around developing finance professionals. And there's a lot of folks, you know, when you think about great coaching trees, folks that grew up in finance at Ford Motor Company that uh, were able to grow on to become CFOs of other companies. And I knew that track record. So I uh, joined their Ford College graduate training program, moved between accounting and finance for the first two years at the Ford Motor Company. And then over the course of the next 12 years, ended up having about 11 different jobs, ultimately ended up um, doing mergers and acquisitions and joint venture work uh, as part of the strategy team as we were getting ready to spin off what became the Visteon parts unit. So I've uh, got a lot of fun traveling the world, uh, working through those things. I spent a lot of time in Korea working on all the joint ventures that Ford Motor Company had there. 
And then uh, we went on a little buying spree to try to diversify the parts unit away from the uh, U.S. manufacturers and in particular diversify away from Ford. Got to spend a lot of time buying, um, you know, some plastic companies in um, in France. So got to spend a lot of time in Paris as a young guy. So, you know, you start thinking about great career experiences, traveling the globe, um, learning finance, supporting the business. Uh, it was a great journey while I was at, uh, at the Ford Motor Company. And, and one question on that before Mike jumps in here, just uh, curious on the international experience. You hear a lot of times when people are kind of being groomed or making their way up the C-suite, they get that international experience and they see uh, markets outside of the U.S. How did that shape your, your career progression? Do you look back on that and see that as pretty impactful? Well, it helped a ton. Um, you know, you, you really got to think about how you adapt to different cultures along the way. And, you know, in... Uh, in Korea, you really had to spend a lot of time building a relationship. And thank God I was a young man and you had to go to a lot of dinners and drink a lot of soju along the way. But that was part of the rite of passage to build the connection so they would trust you. And then you could put all your business skills and finance skills to work. So that was neat learning that, um, learning how to negotiate in another country, uh, you know, uh, at least in France when we were working on all the deals. You know, we uh, everybody spoke English, so it quickly made you realize that you know, everybody else speaks a second language, but, uh, you know, us Americans just seem to be focused on English. Um, so that was a, a, a big aha. But it uh, it continued to uh, really form um, a lot of my thinking around how different businesses work, how you partner with different people, how you build relationships. Uh, and it certainly helped me. And we can talk about my career beyond Ford when I went to Kellogg's. I did spend some time internationally working for them uh, in, uh, in Dublin, Ireland, too. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So something I'm curious about, I mean, you spent your whole career at places like Ford, Kellogg, Wendy's. These are all large corporations, right? What did you enjoy about that large corporate experience? Was there was there anything in particular that stood out to you? Like this is this is the main reason I decided to stick it out with larger corporations. Yeah, first off, you know, at um, at all the larger corporations, Ford, Kellogg, um, now at Wendy's, one they're great brands and they're brands that you can connect to. So you say Ford, you know exactly the product that you're going to have. You say Kellogg, you know the products that they have. Wendy's, you know what you're getting there. But when you got these larger companies, they really invest in people. Uh, they spend the time training. They spend the time developing you. Um, you get to move a lot around a lot. You know, as evidenced by all the positions that I had when I was at Ford Motor Company. You know, I built a lot of great relationships at Ford and got recruited away from Ford to Kellogg uh, by a gentleman that I worked for a couple of times at Ford that became the CFO of uh, of the Kellogg company. And he asked if I would come over and do corporate planning and strategy for them at uh, at the Kellogg company. And I took that role and moved from, uh, you know, the, the east side of the state of Michigan to the west side of the state and was doing corporate planning and strategy at a time when the company was looking to diversify away from uh, from cereal and was part of the team that, uh, you know, kind of led the search that led us to buying the Keebler cookie company. So we bought Keebler, diversified into snacks at, uh, at Kellogg. I was able to move to Chicago to become the first CFO post the acquisition and help the integration of that business. And that was just an unbelievable experience, um, melding two cultures together, melding an acquisition together, and a great learning. And you know, in big companies, you get those opportunities. And 
it actually continued at uh, at Kellogg because as I was on that track to become the CFO potentially long term at Kellogg, they really wanted me to have you know some international experience. So they relocated our family to Dublin, Ireland. I was a CFO of Kellogg Europe, got uh, to spend about a year and a half in Europe uh, and got to really learn the business um, from a whole different angle. You know, what does cereal mean in Europe? You know, where does the uh, where does uh, the role of snacks play? Um, we started buying some snacks companies in Russia, which was an interesting spot to go visit and do due diligence in. Um, but it's those experiences that you get in a large company that are second to none that give you a ton of breadth of experiences that really set you up for success over the long run. So you talk about you know getting opportunity after opportunity as you progress through your career and then uh, getting asked to move over to Kellogg when, when somebody that you had worked under formerly had made that transition. Why do you think that it was you that they, they reached back out to and chose not only to continue to progress once you were at Kellogg, but to even join the company in the first place? Was it something about your work ethic that sticks out to you or... Yeah, I think a lot of it goes back to, um, um, you know, my upbringing. And it is really about work ethic, Josh. You know, I spent a lot of time uh, growing up. My my dad grew up on a farm and he really wanted to make sure that I had a strong work ethic. So most folks are going out and getting cool internships during undergrad. I spent four summers working on a blacktop crew, working 70, 80 hours a week, traveling to little towns all across the Upper Peninsula. And it was part of my dad's method to the madness because I could not wait until fall came and I could go back to school because that was a heck of a lot more fun than shoveling asphalt back into the front of a hopper every day uh, across all over the UP. And I've always had that work ethic. I never wanted to be outworked. I would work super, super hard and, you know, created a lot of breaks for myself along the way, but was smart. I surrounded myself all the time with a lot of good people that uh, not only I could help, become their very best, but they could help me really shine and uh, and really help me stand apart from a lot of the other young professionals that were in each of the organizations. And you know, it really always comes back down to leadership, right? Do you create a lot of followership? Will people follow you? Are you clear on your communication? Do you know how to influence? Do you know how to impact? But at the end of the day, if you can create followership, you know, you end up becoming a leader that can continue to grow in any organization that you're in. So, Todd, let's talk a little bit about the transition to Wendy's. So, what what brought you to the Wendy's team from Kellogg? Yeah, no, it was a tough one for me to to make that decision because I never thought I'd leave uh, the Kellogg company. I had a lot of great experiences, was on a track to potentially become the CEO, um, at a minimum, hopefully become the CFO. And uh, like all of us at that stage of our career, you get a call one day from a headhunter, and a headhunter was calling and wanted to know you know, would I be interested in becoming the CFO of the Wendy's company? And, you know, at the time I was thinking, well, why would I want to leave Kellogg when I have the opportunity to do that there? And Wendy's was struggling. You know, if you think about back in 2013, you know, they had just started under new leadership with Amel Brolup, the new CEO. But as I reflected on the opportunity, a couple of things happened. One, I love the brand as a consumer. So I've always eaten at Wendy's uh, from day one. Um, And in fact, I had a very strong connection to the brand because my dad built the Wendy's restaurant in Iron Mountain, Michigan in 1984. So I I grew up around the restaurant. Uh, It was part of what was in our family. He wasn't a restaurateur. He was a finance guy, but we had a great general manager. And I've always been connected to that brand from uh, from a very young age. So I thought it'd be cool to be part of the journey. But very importantly, Emil Brolick, who was the former CEO of, uh, of Wendy's, had an unbelievable career in the restaurant business. Was one that was one of the icons of leaders in the restaurant business, helped turn around Taco Bell back in the day, 
worked with Dave Thomas way back when, and I thought it was just an unbelievable opportunity to be able to learn and grow in partnership with him. You know, he allowed me to accelerate my journey to be a public company CFO probably four or five years earlier than that would have happened at uh, at Kellogg. But he also gave me the opportunity to potentially prove myself to grow into the CEO role. And we had two, three, four different potential succession candidates. But he gave me every opportunity as he gave me the technology business. Uh, he gave me the development, so our new restaurant development reimaging business gave me some international experience as we were trying to grow with that platform. And he had that discussion from day one that he had given me the experiences to give me a chance to potentially grow into the CEO role. And with the connection and that opportunity, I said, I'm going to Wendy's. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So as you progress through those different roles and you were given those different opportunities, are there certain milestones that stick out to you or lessons, whether it's strategically or through leadership that you reflect back on and you say these were really powerful or meaningful in my progression to where I'm at today, strictly as it relates to your time at Wendy's? Yeah, so uh, we had to make some big business decisions. So you think about back when I joined Wendy's, you know, we were you know, trading at about $5, $5.50 a share. And we hadn't moved a whole heck of a lot. You know, we weren't driving sales. We weren't driving new development. Our restaurants were old and tired. And what we really started on early on was what did we need to do to re-image our restaurants? Um, and you're starting to see those be re-imaged across the country. But at the time, you know, our average restaurant was probably, you know, 15 to 20 years old and it looked old and tired. So they needed to be upgraded. But we also ran about 1,500 company restaurants at the time. And what we decided to do is sell a lot of the company restaurants and bring uh, fresh blood and new blood into the system with our franchise community. Um, and it was done on purpose to bring those folks in, uh, to sign them up, to re-image those restaurants very quickly, uh, and to commit to new development agreements. So that was a big move for us as we decided to go a little asset lighter, um, put the restaurants in the hands of more operators, we ultimately decided we still wanted to have a 5% company ownership footprint, so about 370 restaurants, geographically dispersed across the country in good weather and bad weather and high-wage markets, low-wage markets, so we could be a great brand steward. Uh, and that was uh, a big part of being able to sell the franchise community that we had skin in the game, that we had to live the pain that they lived so we could lead and they would follow every step of the way. So those were a couple of the big moves. And then we did a lot of capital structure work. Um, we, uh, we raised a lot of debt. Uh, we put a secure debt structure in place, returned a lot of cash to shareholders through share repurchase and, uh, and increasing dividends over time, and really then continued to invest in a lot of different waves of growth, which we can talk about. But um, you, know, you look at the performance over the time, you know, stocks trading about $23 today. Um, our dividend back when I joined the company was two cents, uh, well, eight, two cents a quarter, eight cents a year. Uh, just before COVID, it was uh, 12 cents a quarter or 48 cents a year. So we've been able to return a lot to shareholders along the way. Uh, and the business has got a lot of momentum right now. So a lot of that strategy seems to center around it. And probably just because of your perspective and your finance background, maybe you, maybe you reflect on those moments the most. But, you know, talk about restructuring the debt and, and letting off some of the assets and things like that. Do you feel like having a background in something like marketing or Anything else would have set you up or positioned you to uh, achieve the success that you've achieved since stepping into the role? 
You know, it's a great question. You know, you go back to my days at, at Kellogg and, you know, when, when I was offered the opportunity to run the snacks business, you know, the CEO at the time was John Bryan and everybody that ran the business units at Kellogg had a marketing or sales background. And I said, uh, well, the track record isn't very good uh, for finance professionals to, to run businesses. And he said, well, if you're successful at running the business, it can set you up to not only be the CFO, but you could also be the CEO. If you do just an okay job, you'll be a better CFO for it. And then it left the obvious question. I said, well, what happens if I don't do so good? He said, well, you'll be looking for a different job. But that's where you just got to have courage to take those roles on. Because when I was running the snacks business, it gave me a lot of opportunity to really learn the sales side of the business, learn the, learn the marketing side of the business. And you know, as I came into Wendy's as a good business partner and with a strong CFO background, Emil Brolich was a great brand leader. And we had a lot of great marketers during the time. And we were really trying to reposition Wendy's as a cut above traditional QSR. And how did we really separate ourselves with the quality of the offering of our food? And, you know, you think about what we bring to the party every single day, you know, fresh, uh, fresh beef and uh, fresh cut vegetables and, you know, fresh cracked eggs on, on our breakfast sandwiches and oven baked bacon and everything's fully customizable and make to order. Those were all things that we knew we had to just continue to accentuate along the way to really bring our brand to life and set ourselves apart as, um, as somebody that's just a little different. You know, you think about the fast food business, it's super competitive and it's always gonna be successful because speed, convenience and affordability are basic human needs, right? And we serve that purpose day in and day out, but we can differentiate on the quality of our food and the quality of our experience and that's where we've been doing all the work around renovating and upgrading our menu on uh, on the lunch and dinner day part, entering the breakfast day part, uh, and then just great and great experiences through digital and other things that we're working on right now. One thing that I think about when I think of Wendy's is your social media presence, right? Wendy's has a phenomenal social media. In fact, I think still has the most retweeted tweet of all time with uh, somebody was asking for like free chicken nuggets for life. And the Wendy's account said basically like, oh yeah, you need like a million retweets. And that person ended up getting them. But like the Wendy's, whoever runs that account is insane. And that that Twitter account, but like Wendy's social media is very much like just hard hitting, but funny and kind of like, I don't see a lot of tweets from you guys that aren't like, oh man, that was, that was a good one. And I do, um, I, I think it resonates through the brand. I mean, I, I feel yeah. like Wendy's is a brand that I personally feel more in touch with than any other fast food organization that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, well, thanks for saying that, guys. I mean, we, we made a conscious effort back in 2016 to really step back and think about what could the social voice of Wendy's be, right? I joke a lot. We're not a king. Uh, we're not a clown. Um, we're Wendy. And uh, Wendy is Dave Thomas's daughter. So we should have a voice that resonates and supports what the brand stands for. And we did a lot of work really thinking about, um, you know, what could the voice of Wendy's be? And you know, when you think about a little tongue in cheek, making fun of ourselves, some folks say a little snarky, you know, that was kind of how we wanted to bring to life the brand voice of Wendy's. But we knew we needed to have a team that was always connected. So we have a small social listening team, three, four folks in uh, in headquarters here in Dublin. We got another three or four that help us from the agency VML in Kansas City. And they're all got their own social genre that they're experts at, and, and they're always listening. But what we wanted to do is create the guardrails so they could actually have real-time conversations without looking for any approval of what can I say or what should I do, because you had to engage in the conversations when the, uh, the moment happens to make sure that it is authentic. And you really have to be 
courageous to take advantage of anything that pops so you can create great experiences because of uh, of the tweets. And, you know, you talked about a couple of them, Mike. I mean, you think about, you know, Nugs for Carter when he said, how many retweets to get free nuggets for a year? And, you know, we said 18 million. You know, the all-time retweet lead was like 3.2 with Ellen DeGeneres and, uh, and Bradley Cooper. Um, and he crushed that. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you think about last summer, Chance the Rapper, you know, we, we knew we were going to bring back spicy chicken nuggets at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little earlier than we were anticipating bringing the nuggets back, Chance the Rapper said, I really wish Wendy's would bring back spicy chicken nuggets. And we just jumped on that. We said, hey, two million retweets um, and uh, and we'll bring back spicy chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. And literally in 48 hours, it was the most, um, you know, retweeted uh or most tweet likes um, in uh, in the history of uh, of Twitter, and you got to take advantage of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go way back. It really started when McDonald's decided to go in and launch fresh beef on one one hamburger line, right? The, right. the quarter pounder line, and you know that's when our most famous retweet of all time. Yeah, I remember that one actually. Say, so let me get this right. In about a year, in most of your restaurants, on one of your hamburgers, you're going to have fresh beef just asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just took off like crazy. And those are things where we're at our best is when we're pointing out our unique differences around quality versus the competition. That's when we're the best on social media. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Working from home is full of challenges. Online school from home can be even tougher. The internet's frozen again. I can't hear my teacher. Don't add to the frustrations with no hot water for showers or laundry or cooking. Clog drains in your kitchens or bathrooms. You have enough going on at home right now. You know who to call. Let the pros at the Waterworks handle all your plumbing and drain cleaning. Call 614-25-DRAIN today. So talk a little bit about, you know, COVID and what the initiatives are that you guys are working on now. You know, if you think about the value chain of fast food and you think about strategy across those different aspects of the value chain and how COVID is, is influencing those things, as the CEO of an organization, how do you step back and you you take a look at the ecosystem and the unpredictability around everything and, and decide how to spend your time and, and what the most appropriate moves are? You know, yeah, I guess, you know, you think of the last seven, eight months, right? The world's changed for, for all of us. And, you know, safety is, uh, is paramount, uh, safety of our employees, safety of our customers, safety of the whole supply chain on food. And, you know, it did start with a safety mindset on everything that we were doing to make sure that we could, um, you know, serve great quality food in, uh, in an environment where people were comfortable. But we did have to influence a lot over the course of, uh, of the early days of COVID. We had to make sure that we were deemed an essential service. And, you know, we had a lot of discussions with local officials, governors, um, folks up at the White House that, um, you know, fast food is uh, should be an essential service because we can help feed America. We can feed America with quality food that's affordable and we can take a lot of pressure off the grocery stores and we can provide food and probably a safer environment than what a lot of the grocery stores could at the time. So we influenced a ton on that front. And then the focus really became, how do we actually get faster at the drive-through? How do we get better positioned in our restaurants to make sure with all those big lunch orders coming through and this dinner orders coming through, we get through, through fast, accurate, friendly. We really pushed our digital platform hard. You think about what we were doing on mobile ordering, we started pushing really hard. How can you do mobile grab and go and grab your order out of the inside? How can you have a mobile order and go to the other side of the building and have a curbside pickup? 
Now, how do we get all the delivery platforms fully integrated on uh, onto our point of sale system? And you know, we put in place. We always had DoorDash, but we quickly added Uber Eats and Grubhub and Postmates, and then really leveraged all of that to try to complete the ecosystem by putting a loyalty program in place to make sure that we can drive frequency to the restaurant. So it was really a focus on what we always did well through the drive-through, but then really complementing it all with the digital, more contactless environment to continue to drive our business. Because you got to remember, we launched breakfast just prior to COVID. And, you know, we were jacked up, right? We are the official breakfast of the NCAA. We're going to have all kinds of media on for, you know, four or five weeks through the tournament. First week, our sales were up 18% and then COVID hit. And uh, the most hard hit day part had been breakfast, but we've been doing quite well. And it's mixing about 7% of our sales. It's adding about 6.5% to our top line growth. And we just reported our third quarter earnings where we were growing 7% on the top line and, and grew profit on the bottom. And it's really because quality. We can differentiate on better food. And the breakfast day part, which we thought would really spike you know, from seven to, to nine, it's not happening that way in a COVID world, right? Breakfast builds every half hour all the way till 10.30. And our peak breakfast uh, uh, time is 10 to 10.30 because everybody's grazing, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. just out snacking. No one's getting up early to drive to work anymore. You're working from home and then you go out and get a late morning snack. But what we've really focused on is how do we differentiate on a great quality experience of our food? And uh, and those are the things that we keep working on. And and you've seen it recently. You know, we've just upgraded, creating a big chicken war out there, right? How's uh, Wendy's Classic Chicken? It's been fully renovated. It's more juicy. It's more tender. It's got a new, nice uh, texture to it. And the breading is great. And we threw a pickle on it and um, and are having a lot of fun, really trying to compete with some of the other great offerings that are out there on the chicken side. So another strategy-related question, and this one's a little bit off the script, totally cut it if it's too forward-looking. But you know, I was reading the other morning about the future of retail. It wasn't necessarily in terms of fast food, but I'm sure there's an influence there. And you hear about the rise of ghost kitchens, and you talked about you know DoorDash and Grubhub and, and the food delivery. How does that relate to your guys' strategy? You guys thought it all about is there going to be a different look to what a Wendy's store looks like? Is there going to be any type of delivery brought into the company or built into the franchises? Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. And now we are a little bit ahead of the curve. We've been uh, looking at different uh, designs and sizes of Wendy's restaurants for the last three or four years. We've had a smart suite of uh, of restaurant designs, 30-seaters, 40-seaters, 55, 65-seaters. So what we were trying to do is make sure that we could get a restaurant, you know, on, on a half acre or less versus the old acre or more site. But as we've been going through this summer and looking at all the opportunities that are out there, you know, a drive-through only Wendy's, we would have never thought about doing that in the past. Well, we've proven that we can do a lot of business through drive through So we're going to do a bunch of prototype drive-through only Wendy's restaurants. We got a conversion task force in place. So any restaurant, bank, something that's not going to make it through the challenges, we've reached out to everyone. Let us uh, let us have the opportunity to figure out how we convert that into a Wendy's to, uh, to create more opportunities. And the team will do that. We've done many of them and we got many in the pipeline. And these ghost kitchens or dark kitchens, they fit really well for the Wendy's arena because we're underrepresented in a lot of urban locations. So folks don't have access to the Wendy's brand. And we've got uh, some dark kitchen tests going on out in California. We got a couple in Chicago. Um, We got some really small ones out of trailers in downtown Toronto with reef kitchens. You plug in a small kitchen to four delivery providers like you have in the U.S. to somebody that wants the Wendy's brand is going in through uh, through whatever delivery app they have. 
uh, those are great opportunities to continue to drive growth. And you'll see more and more of that coming from us into the future. So great question, Josh. Sounds like exciting stuff, Todd. And uh, so one of the things that I'm curious about, right, you've, you've been in quite a few different leadership roles throughout your career. What would you say is kind of the lessons you've learned so far? Is there any particular lesson that stands out to you? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, if you think, Mike, you always reflect on leadership. And, you know, during the course of this summer, we've had a lot of challenges and opportunities to lead. But, you know, as I think about lessons for me, you know, always build a strong team. You know, make sure you're not afraid to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Um, There's a tendency for great leaders to never want anybody smarter than them around them. Don't do that. Bring in a lot of smart folks, uh, you know. And then as you got that team in place, create the opportunities for them to be their very best. I use a lot of sports analogies. My job is to be the big burly lineman, to open up the holes so my team can go score all the touchdowns and get all the glory. So that's my job, right? Break down those barriers. And and that's your job as a leader, to break down the barriers to create the success for your teams that are around you. Um, And then make sure that folks have the courage to run the plays. You know, got to get out of the huddle. You got to start marching the ball down the field. Yeah, you might get a few sacks and have a few penalties, but at least you're moving to the end zone, you're learning, and then you got to have the courage to check and adjust pretty darn quick if, uh, if you have to. And then build some really strong relationships because you have to drive strong followership as a leader. And I always say you got to win their hearts before their heads will ever follow. And I spent a lot of time spending the time to make sure that we do that. And then you got to communicate, communicate, communicate to drive alignment and then really focus on executing like crazy. And that's what leaders need to do. Um, and I've been blessed with some unbelievable great teams around me at, uh, at Wendy's and at Kellogg, you know, as an individual contributor at Ford, but I've seen a lot of great teams and you work so hard to build not just a collection of all-stars, but a true all-star team. Because I say this all the time, win together as a team and great things will happen for everyone. And, uh, and that's always our focus. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years, providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. I think your advice and and the way that you uh, approach leadership really mimics some of the the greatest and and best leaders that we've had on the podcast and, and that we've listened to between Mike and I for sure. But what I'm curious about is you approach through that the ability to step aside and not have a fear that surround yourself by exceptional people and people who who you may seem to be smarter than you. Uh, some people fear that a little bit. How have you been able to put that aside and not have that type of fear and just be confident in your own abilities? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Josh. And, you know, this goes back, and I tell this story a lot, about 20 years ago. I was a young hotshot guy. He was the CFO of, uh, of the Kellogg Snacks business, and I got some 360 feedback, and it wasn't so good. And I called my four leaders that reported to me and, you know, into my office, and I said, you know, guys, gals, I mean, what, what's up with this feedback? I thought you loved working for me. And they said, yeah, we love working for you, but why do you need us? And I was like, well, what, what are you talking about? Like everyone wants to just go to your office. You're very comfortable making decisions. You're very comfortable, you know, telling folks what uh, what you think they should do. Um, and if that's the case, then why have us around? And you know, like any young leader, I got very defensive. Like, what do you want me to do about it? And then you know, John, Melissa, Larry, they made it very clear. Just ask the folks that come into your office. Have they reviewed it with John, Melissa, or Larry? And send it back to those folks. And their whole point was, let us do a little bit of work. We're closer to it than you will ever be. We can do a lot of vetting out and, and some recommendations and get you some more facts so you can make even more informed decisions along the way. And, you know, I started letting go a lot as I moved from a young leader to a, a more seasoned leader. Uh, and I think that's what's given me the confidence to really do that the rest of my career. But importantly, what it did is it allowed me to get out of the grimble and the detail of day to day and start to get into other functions, learn the marketing function, learn the sales function, learn operations. And I'm absolutely convinced that that feedback that I got, which gave me a broader breadth of how to run a business, really led to my opportunity to become the president of the Snacks business and eventually become the CEO of Kellogg. So you just got to have the courage. And winning's fun, right? We, I say this all the time. Momentum breeds more momentum. And winning uh, you know, continues to create some great winning streaks. But there's nothing more fun than winning. And, mm. uh, and when, when you're winning, man, uh, there is a lot of things that, uh, that can go well for the whole team. And, uh, and that's when teams build reputations. And that's the fun part about the business. And, you know, you remember that. I get, I get a lot of accolades for a lot of stuff. And it's because of the great work that my team does. And I'll be the first to say thank you to my team for all of that great work. But I'll tell you what, they're very complimentary of me to say, hey, you're our leader. We're glad to do the work for you. And you really want to create those environments where people do the work because they want to, not because they have to. And that's a completely different mentality when they want to go to the, through the wall for leaders. And, uh, and that's when you create an unbelievably great culture and a great environment to be part of. Maybe one final question from my end on that same topic and to kind of dovetail it. You talked about, you know, learning operations and the new areas of the business. As you look back on your career, how have you balanced focusing on your current initiatives and, and focusing on self-improvement? Have you have you dedicated a lot of time throughout your life to continuing to sharpen the saw and, and focus on new areas of business? Yeah, you always have to continue to invest back in yourself. And, and you have to have the intellectual curiosity to continue to learn. Um, and, you know, when you create great leaders around you and you bring a lot of smart people around you, it forces you to continue to go out and be well-read. And it forces you to continue to go out and think. And, you know, you got to balance having a long-term vision of where you want to take a business versus what you need to do to deliver it um, in, in the near term. And everything you do in the near term needs to be building blocks to lead up to that ultimate strategy. And those are the things that you just really need to step back and do. And a lot of that is, you know, being around other great leaders, watching what works, watching what doesn't work, you know, reading a lot of stuff to, to see how others thought about the business, and then really accepting feedback. You know, I've been blessed in you know, you talk about what folks at Ford and Kellogg and Wendy's, I've gotten a lot of 360 feedback over the years. And 
you know, I always joke, it's like spinach, right? It might not taste so good going down, but it makes you stronger. And you really got to embrace that feedback because that then challenges you to go think about what things should I be doing to be even better? And I always mm-hmm. say this, my focus is how am I even better tomorrow? You know, even when I'm giving feedback, it's, I try to not make it sure it's critical. It's like, hey, in the spirit of even better tomorrow, here's a few things that we can be working on. That's a lot less confrontational than, hey, holy man, you did this wrong, or you should have thought about this. And I'll tell you what, that brings people along for the ride in a hurry. Makes a lot of sense, Todd. And I think that's a, a good place to, to pivot towards our last question of the show. And that's centered on the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Uh, without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for a uh, podcast about leadership, business, and life, uh, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, no, I loved it, as you said it. I mean, it's uh, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and that's part of being a lifelong learner. That's part of having intellectual curiosity. We all know change is inevitable, right? And, mm-hmm. and you got to embrace it, um, and you got to manage it to the best you can. And what I got to say is you got to control what you can control, influence everything else, and if you can't influence it or control it, don't stress over it. And and that's part of living uncomfortably because you just know there's some things you can't change. So uh, I love the mantra that you guys have. Perfect. Well, thanks, Todd. And uh, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your story. Talk a little bit about Wendy's with us today. Appreciate the time tonight, Mike, Josh. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Perfect. And uh, Conquerors, hope you guys enjoyed that as well. That was Todd Penagor, CEO of the Wendy's Corporation. Go ahead and leave a like, share it with your friends. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.